0: Been out of First Peter for a few weeks, but we're going to go back into First Peter for the next few weeks. But let's look here in First Peter, chapter two. How many of you guys have visited uh, the YouTube website at some point in your life? YouTube, All right? Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure where that YouTube thing is going, where it's going to end up. It's, it's like a museum for odd human behavior. And, and then you can publish it and get an audience uh, immediately. And, you know, and some things, some things are those things that you told your kids about somebody else. You know, don't encourage him, you know, that sort of thing. Now you can publish this stuff on, on a web page. But I will often get this urgent plea from the other room from my boys. If I'm maybe just in the kitchen eating there on YouTube and it's dad, 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 come, come see this. Come see. this. It's like whatever you're doing needs to stop. This is critical. And, and it's, it's usually some mind blowing freak behavior. Uh, at this point, it involves a basketball for the boys. So there's there's a guy who's, who's shooting a three-quarter court shot, and, you know, it's going in. So we're watching this on YouTube. There's some of you guys, if you're a YouTube basketball watcher, you've seen this, this kid who, closing seconds of the game, gets a rebound, is falling to the ground, not too far from the out-of-bounds marker, falling to the ground, almost on his behind, throws the ball up in the air and makes the shot as the buzzer is sounding, and they win the game. Right? Or there's the 68 Point game by Pete Maravich uh, that you can watch. And yeah, that's an entertaining thing to watch, just to watch the highlights of this whole game of Pete Maravich, and Maravich playing unbelievably. But there, th- this stuff is, it's mind-blowing basketball, right? And maybe you're not into basketball. If you're into something simple like bicycle riding, t- just go look at YouTube bicycle riding, uh, you know, bicycle riding for us, most of us here in the room, it just involves pedaling a bike. And, and, and we're happy if we manage to stay on it. When I was a kid, we would build these, these jumps, right? We were really cool. You know, they would, usually they were wooden and they had some bricks involved. And, and it was definitely waiting for a trip to the hospital. But if you could jump your bike, you know, that was good. If you got some air, that was good. And then you were really cool if you could twist the handlebar while you're in the air and come back down safely, right? And then the really, really cool guys in the neighborhood, they could kind of lean the bike over a little bit, you know, and, and land it, right? Uh, now, now you'd be embarrassed if that's the only game you got with a bicycle these days. These people, they, they, you know, they launch, they do back flips and land the bicycle, they get off, they, they sign autographs, wave, get back on, Land the bicycle without killing themselves. Of course, my question always, when I watch somebody do this backflip thing with a bicycle, I'm thinking, at some point, he was doing that for the first time. <laughs> I'm just wondering what that one looked like. You know? He had to have gone to the hospital on that. But this is, this is mind-blowing activity, right? All right? When we come to this passage, uh, there's some mind-blowing stuff here. Right. There's, there's basketball, and then there's extreme, mind-blowing basketball. There's bike riding. There's extreme bike riding, mind-blowing bike riding. There's Christianity, and there's mind-blowing Christianity. Right Now, that's what these verses are going to introduce us to. So let's, let's look at them. We're going to focus on verses 13-13 through the end of, well, actually, all will way to chapter 3, verse 7. But let me back up just a little bit here and start reading in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And now Peter's going to get specific in terms of conduct that's observable. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see you respectful. And pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of jewelry, and the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Lord, give us, give us ears to hear what I think in this verse is is mind-blowing lifestyle choices in these settings lord that far exceed what we might conceive of as our own lives but yet lord you have called us to such an excellence so god give us ears to hear and faith to respond in jesus name amen and we're going to unpack each of these aspects in weeks to come but but let me just summarize what's being introduced here. In this passage, there's, there's citizenship, and then there's mind-blowing, extreme Christian citizenship. There is servanthood. In this context, these would actually be slaves who were owned by others. Today, we, we can't really translate that into our lives, but there, but there would certainly be some employment activity that might translate for us in a similar way so there's there's employment and then there's mind-blowing christian employment there's marriage in this setting and then there's mind-blowing christian marriage in this setting and so there's there's a there's a realm here in which I think we need to, to notch up a little bit Christianity into a mind-blowing category. Sometimes we're way too nominal in what we expect. In most categories in our lives, this is not asking us to aim at average. It's asking us to consider something that's in the mind-blowing category. Now, let me, let me first just posture us to hear where we are in this, in this passage. This passage is, is an exhortation, right? It's, it's exhorting us to do something. I and mean, I think I put in your outline, it's, it's sort of that infantry captains command to the, to the troops to charge, right? We've just heard some things leading up to this moment, right? They've been gathered together, they've heard some things together, and now there's this call to charge! And I can just, you know, get this picture of people who are taking up their weapons and they're yelling and they're running up a hill, right? That sort of exhortation involves a certain kind of a response, Right? If, if you're going to charge that hill, you're going to do so because you're, you're committed to a certain mission. Right? You know that it's, it's possible, it might even be probable, that you will be injured or killed in what you're about to do. Right? The, the command to charge and take that hill has cost to it. Significant enough cost to where in these categories... You might not be taking a hill that's actually going to involve bullets flying, but there's going to be difficulty and pain in taking these hills. And yet, the Apostle Peter is shouting charge. There's a, there's a sense in which every one of these categories involves movement. It involves departing. Right? You think through these categories, whether it's your citizenship, whether it is your employment situation or whether it is your marriage, this is an exhortation that's telling you move from where you are. Be committed to this mission in such a way that you will put your life in the category of difficulty, in jeopardy, and you will move to a new location. Right? That's the nature of an exhortation. But with an exhortation comes a little bit of a, of, of a backhand, Here's what happens, and this is where I want us to be careful in terms of reading a biblical exhortation. If the Bible says, charge in some category, what are you going to feel like if you don't move? If the Bible makes it sound as though the way you live your life is over there, and you're in that category and you decide, I'm staying right here. Right, now here's what's going to come with that, a sense of guilt, a sense of discomfort. The obvious reality that you are now, having heard that exhortation, you are now standing in the wrong place. If you're gathered amidst the troops of Christianity and the Bible says, George, and everybody picks up their weapons and runs to a new location and you keep standing where you are, can you sense how awkward that's going to become? I know what happens when everybody charges and you remain where you are and they look back at you. Now how do you feel? Do you feel judged? Do you feel condemned? Because to some degree, they're running forward wondering why you're not, right? The Bible said go. Go. The Bible said, live this way. The Bible said, pick up your citizenship and go over there. Pick up your employment and go over there. Pick up your marriage and go over there. Right? That's what it said. And you said, oh. I no. Mean, this is the backhanded side of an exhortation. Anytime you encounter an exhortation in Scripture that you don't heed, guess how you're going to feel? Like a failure? guilty wondering what other people are thinking about you right now now what do you do with that right because here's what we can't do we can't go to the bible passage and say well you know let's just let's just do away with exhortations in the bible let's just not read the exhortations well no we can't do that right the exhortations are there they're intended to be obeyed if i don't obey their exhortations then I'm going to feel a certain way. Right? This whole passage begins with keep your your behavior excellent and honorable among the Gentiles. Abstain from fleshly passions. Okay, well, what if you don't do that? What if you're here today and you're not abstaining from fleshly passions? You know that you are cultivating certain fleshly passions. You are giving in to certain cravings. You know right now that there are people who we could invite into this room right now who know things about you that don't think that your life is honorable. How does that make you feel? And now, listen, there's a reality that the moment the Bible exhorts us, you and I now have grounds upon which to fail. And we can't erase these passages out of the Bible. Neither. Should they provide for us an inappropriate sense of condemnation? So you got to be a little bit more savvy as a Christian to be able to read the Bible than to every time you bump into an exhortation to respond to it like you're being condemned. All right? To be condemned is to have the just judgment of God placed upon your life to where you are being pushed from God in rejection because your sins are your own and now you will pay for your own sins. That's condemnation in the Bible. It can sort of feel a little bit like conviction in the Bible. What you do with conviction, not what the Bible does with it, but what you do with it might make you read the Bible incorrectly. If the Bible says, charge, and everybody gets up and moves and you stay where you are because you don't have the faith for it, you're afraid of it. You just don't like that idea? Okay, in that moment, that, that doesn't mean you're condemned. But it does unavoidably mean you are now standing in the wrong place. you understand? You can, you can be a person who's not under the judgment and condemnation of God and still be standing in the wrong place. Now, what's the remedy to that? You pay for your own sins? No, they've already been paid for. That's that's what frees me from condemnation. What's the remedy to an exhortation? Heed the exhortation. Move where it's telling you to move. Go where it's saying to go. Overcome the fear, the unbelief, the unwillingness, our own imposed wisdom on our lives. This letter right now, it's, it's making this transition that's common in Scripture. Uh, you find it in Ephesians, when you read Ephesians chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, and then you find this therefore, like a big sign sticking up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it, it's, it's now going to move into a bunch of exhortations, right? You find the same thing in Romans, you find Romans digging deep and digging deep and digging deep into what we, remember, we call indicative passages, places where the Bible's telling you all this has been done for you and all this has been done for you and God has done and God did and God did and you've received all this is being said and then at some moment, the Bible will turn a corner and exhort you about something. Okay, you you should see that in the Bible. Remember we said this when we studied through the indicative and imperative aspects of Scripture, that those two dimensions, they, they live in the neighborhood with each other. They're intended to go together. And I think I wrote this out in your outline. We're never called to know something and do nothing. If that's ever become your Christianity, it's the wrong place. We're never called to know something and do nothing. Nor are we called to do without knowing God is the basis for our doing. That's why there's so much indicative statements that are flooding imperative commands and exhortations. And so we gain our faith from who God is to us and what he's done on our behalf and the mercy and grace that's actively present with us. But then the Bible turns around and says, be a certain kind of citizen. Be a certain kind of employee. Be in your marriage a certain way. And so these are going to go together. And there's there's also a shift here now. We've spent some time in this passage focusing on how the Bible is bringing attention to being the people of God. Right? And now it's going to shift some attention to keep your behavior a certain way among the Gentiles. Okay? We've been taught how to be the people of God early in the book, and now we're going to be taught how to touch the world as the people of God. Right? In your outline there, Thomas Schreiner says, the focus shifts from the relationship believers have with one another to their relationship with the unbelieving world. Look at this other thought from... Mr. Schreiner he says believers should live as aliens in this world so that unbelievers will observe their godly lives and glorify God by coming to faith in Christ. Christians must live exemplary lives with the kinds of good deeds that will make unbelievers take notice. Right. This is an invitation to lead a mind-blowing life. This is an invitation to have Christianity displayed on YouTube so that people observe Christianity and they call from the other room and they say, hey, whoa, Dad, come here. You've got to check this out. You've got to check out the way this guy responds in that situation. How on earth? Why would he do that? Why, why would he respond to the government that way? Why would he respond to his boss that way, right? Somebody in your office needs to YouTube your life in the office and go, this dude is mind-blowing, man. I can't believe the way he responds to people, Your marriage should be blowing people's minds. People should be wanting to see, well, after all you guys have been through after this and that happened and, 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 This is is how you're responding to that. That's amazing. How incredible. There's a call for the people of God here to live an exemplary life. Wayne Grudem says, Christians living in an unbelieving society must avoid sinful desires and continually maintain exemplary patterns of life so that unbelievers will be saved and God glorified. There is no reason to doubt that such a strategy for evangelism would still work today. All right, if, if you've tasted of the grace of God and you've come to Christ, and I want to ask you this morning, how many of you are concerned about the people that are lost in your life that you still know, right? I mean, hands would go up everywhere. We, we are all concerned for Relatives and neighbors and friends. And now, if I were to say, listen, we're going to do, be doing some serious evangelism training because we, we want to impact these folks who are lost. Immediately, where does your mind go? You're thinking, we're going to offer an apologetics course. We're going to teach you how to break into a conversation with somebody and introduce them to the gospel. We're going to teach you how to clearly explain the gospel. Right? And that's all viable, and we should all do that. But that's not what this passage is about. This is not about being evangelistic by you as an individual adopting information about apologetics, being able to overcome people's objections about whether the Bible's reliable or not, and you go out on your own individually and convince people with your argument. Although that's not a bad thing to do. What this is about... This is about the people of God living lives that are so amazing and mind-blowing that people want to ask you. Because later on, this same writer is going to tell us, be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you to anyone who would ask. what, What would make them ask? Heeding this exhortation. Restraining the passions in your own life so that when the people of the world look on, they don't find the church smelling and looking just like the world, overcome with the same indulgences and practices. What they see instead is an honorableness in the people of God's lives that causes them to scratch their heads in amazement. Listen, really, do you you think, because you and I are part of the church age right now, do, do you really think, honestly, do you really think the world is blown away by us? Do you really think the world looks on at the church in staggering amazement and goes, wow, these people have got something. What is it that these people have? Listen, listen, right now, as we've studied through 1 Peter, you have been sitting in an evangelism course. Living as the people of God with a statement of excellence who God is, being overwhelmed, what we just did in worshiping God and and getting a view of the greatness of God that transcends issues in our lives, living victoriously, living by faith, living like Christ in this passage who continually entrusted himself to God. These are things that cause the world to take notice of the church so that the message that God's given us is a message somebody wants to hear. You know, in some way, our lives aren't the, they aren't the message of the gospel, if you will. But they sort of are the sound system for it. You know, if you unplug the sound system, you can stand on a hill and yell all you want. People kind of make out what you're saying and, uh, you know, I can't really hear. But a life that's lived for the glory of God in observable, excellent ways, it's like plugging the gospel into a sound system and all of a sudden there's this loud declaration of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on our behalf that we are blown away by. That's what this passage is doing evangelistically. Remember this quote earlier in our study, Henry Blackaby says, over the last few years or decades, the focus has shifted away from God's people to evangelism and the lost. However, Significant evangelism is a byproduct of what God does with his people. If we bypass the people of God, we have shut down evangelism. But when we help the people of God know who they are in Christ and what God purposed for their lives through salvation, the world will be turned upside down. When we examine how the early apostles implemented the Great Commission... As Peter is doing here, we may be surprised. The apostles were not focused on evangelizing the lost. Rather, they turned their attention to teach the people of God to obey all that Christ commanded. These exhortations carry with it that when we fulfill the exhortations of God, we create opportunities for evangelism, we create a field that gets ripe to respond to evangelism. Please don't sit in this church thinking that the people that are doing evangelism are the one leading alpha tables. Now, no, They are doing one aspect of evangelism. But if the aroma from the church has, has no flavor to it, there's no attraction to it, there's no saltiness, there's no light from the church, it's a very hard thing to think that our message is validity. In the eyes of the world. That's what Paul's concern, or Peter's concern is the life being lived by the people of God. Now, the purpose of these exhortations is going to get informed by the nature of these exhortations, right? The, the nature is extreme. There's some extreme stuff being said here. Be in subjection to the governing authorities honor the emperor. right? Do you remember who the emperor was at this point in history? A nutcase named Nero was the emperor. Now, if you've studied anything about history outside of the Bible, you know, this this guy was a fruitcake. This guy had some serious issues. People suffered tremendously underneath him. So I, I don't know what policies you take issue with with the federal government right now. But you'd have had issues all over the place with this guy. And yet the Bible then turns around and says, hey, blow people's mind. Be in subjection to Nero. Yeah, you know, yeah, the one who killed your cousin who was a believer, and that's why he was killed. Right? These folks who are going to be encouraged who are slaves, they, they are slaves They are owned by another person. And the encouragement here is not just for them to tolerate slavery, but to ratchet up their response to ungodly owners so that you can blow their minds. And blow their minds by what? Just putting up with the whole concept of slavery? No, that doesn't even get brought up. Blow their minds by being able to submit yourself with respect to the ones who mistreat you and abuse you. It's bad enough that you're owned by another human being, even if they were nice. But the calling for a Christian in that setting in this moment was blow their minds by living such a way toward your owners who who abuse you. They are abusive in their behavior. Blow their minds in your response. I know we don't have any slave owners here, but I don't know. Maybe you got some bosses that are like that. Right, listen, listen. This, is, this is what living as an American teaches you to do in that moment. And sometimes i got to take issue with our mindset of being Americans because sometimes it's so far from the Bible. As an American employee, if you're being mistreated, right, your first response is, I don't have to put up with that. Right? I mean, it's get your back up. It's to call your attorney. Now, I'm not saying it wouldn't be appropriate for you to call an attorney if a certain situation broke out. But you're going to be guided by mind-blowing principles as you relate to those who are doing wrong. You're Not just some American, I've got rights, you know. All offended and irritated by people in the world who are lost acting like they're lost? Right? Can, we, can we all get off the shock wagon? It's like, let me tell you what happened to me this week. And then you listen to the story and, and, okay, can I just retitle that? Let me tell you what happened to me this week. I was around lost people and they acted just like they were lost. And the punchline is, Listen, be surprised when the people of God act like they're lost. But don't be surprised when the world acts like it's lost. It is lost. (laughs) It's the way they're going to act, and they're supposed to. Marriages are to be mind-blowing marriages. The the nature of this exhortation is to wives. Listen, all you wives know this. Wives, wives. Be in submission to your husband. You know, if you just stop right there, that that would be a challenging enough task, wouldn't it? I mean, I know it is for my wife. Uh, (laughs) There's another human being who has a will different than yours, and you're called to be in submission to it. Period. Tough concept. Sounds like a bad idea from the get-go, doesn't it? Now, what's amazing in this passage, though, is that's not who's being addressed. It's worse than that. Wives, be in submission to your husbands even when they disobey God. Be in submission to them. Now, isn't that like the deal killer right there? If your husband's going to disobey God, doesn't that like, hey, I'm out. You're not obeying God. You're not walking with God. You're not right with God. I'm out, man. I'm not submitting to you. But, but this says, no, blow their minds. Wives, submit to your husbands even if they're disobedient to the word that they can watch you blow their minds and be affected. And then God would be at work. See, so this, is, this is quite a call, isn't it? Now here's the challenge for us, because I think this is a great mistake being made by Christianity. The, the purpose dimension here, right? If I, if I had a, a range of human behavior here, right? Over here at this end is the world's patterns of living extremely worldly pursuits of pleasure, extremely materialistic. Everything about life is based in finding some pleasure and return based on wealth or possessions or activities, something in the natural realm seeking to supply for me joy and life. So extremely pleasure-oriented, extremely materialistic, extremely individualistic. Right? Everything about my world, I want it to be according to things that I like, things I like to do. Right now when we, when we kind of try to match make, it's sort of like this list that you've got to be just like me in all these categories so we can match make and come together because basically I don't feel like being any different than who I am. So if you're just like me, I can just keep being me and you can be me too and we'll have a great relationship. Right, so extremely individualistic. Now the church comes along and says, hey, we're the church. We're salt and light in the world. So we need to ramp this up a little bit. So, you know, we can't be extremely these things. So, you know, let's move past heavily these things and maybe just be moderately these things. So, you know, we're, we're a couple of steps better than the world. You know, we're moderately materialistic, right? I mean, we're not extremely, we're just moderately. Uh, we are moderately individualistic. I'm willing to make room, but, you know, but there's still a lot of individualism. We're moderately pursuing pleasure as the crown jewel of life. We're not extremely, we're moderately but, you know, the Bible doesn't call us to use the world as a reference point and then take two steps to the left. Do you know what the reference point for the people of God is? Right, we began this passage right after the reference point when we read today. It's one we spent a good bit of time in. But you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Why? So that you could show forth the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness. Okay, so where's the reference point? The reference point is at the other end of the spectrum. It's way over here. It's called the holy character of God. This is the reference point for my behavior. Because I exist on this planet in these contexts as a citizen of America, as an employee, as a spouse. I exist in those settings to declare the glory of God. Not to declare a slightly improved version of the world. I, I exist to declare the glory of God. So in this moment, which is why this verse is about to go where it's going to go to referencing Christ... Because I'm to be a bringer of the glory of God into these places. And being like God in these moments is mind-blowing. You know, when this verse starts off, I'm just going to give you a little public service announcement of a series that we're going to do here in the summer about, I think I'm going to call it, Cooperating with the Spirit. There's, there's a call here that runs way too deep for any of us to pull off. Here's what you can't do. You can't decide, I'm going to be a declarer of the glory of God. I'm going to take some ideas, I'm even taking from the Bible, and I'm going to join them with my best effort. And and yeah, by golly, I'm going to to declare the glory of God in all these places of my life. (laughs) No, you're not. You're going to need a whole lot more than that to ever pull that off. You're going to need God himself to pull that off in the person of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, reason why we're probably going to do some emphasis in series this summer is that because I, I don't think it's right for us to assume that though, you know, we know that there is a Holy Spirit and we know that we might need the Holy Spirit, it does not mean that we know how to cooperate with Him in the Spirit. But if we're ever going to declare the glory of God, we're going to need to cooperate by the Spirit. Right? This is the, the same emphasis that Peter brings here of of. Uh, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, right? If you go into Paul's presentation in Galatians chapter 5, where there's this depiction of the desires of the flesh are at war against the desires of the spirit. There's a component of the spirit. And then there's the activity of the flesh that's set in contrast against the fruit of the spirit, Right, so if you're ever going to live free from the desires of the flesh, it's going to have to be because of the operation of the Spirit in our lives. Right, so we'll stay tuned. We'll have that in a few weeks. But here, here's the reference point. The reference point for us in living these mind-blowing lives is that we do so because we exist to declare the glory of God. We don't exist to declare a cleaned-up version of the world. I mean, just logically speaking, right? I mean, you do realize 50 years ago, 80 years ago, some of the extreme behaviors in the world didn't even exist. They were moderate in that category, right? So this can never, this is a moving target. This one's stationary. We live to declare the glory of God, which is where this passage is going to end up. It ends up, it, it talks about citizenship, it talks about being a servant, and then, it, and then it has something else, and then it talks about our marriages. Well, it's the something else that's right there in the middle. It's like if you press on that thing right in the middle, it squirts out in both directions. Well, what was that thing in the middle? It's, it's the mind-blowing Christ himself. There's a realm in which if Christians are to live mind-blowing lives in the world, you've got to first have your own mind blown you got to encounter a God who blows your mind, that you stand in awe and magnetic amazement of him. You are dazzled by him. You are drawn to him, though you might even be fearful of him. There's an awesomeness to this God that, that, quite honestly, I don't know how present it really, really is in the lives of many, many Christians. I think that is a major flaw. It, it's the basis for these passages. So if I pull this out, it, it can't be a good thing, right? Go, go to verse 21 there. Right? We've just heard about citizenship and being subject even to Nero. We've heard about slaves being subject to abusive slave owners. <clears throat> and then there's this transition in verse 21. For to this... <clears throat> for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Right? These are If you meditate on these, don't just read through this. You're going to have to go back and meditate on it. This is mind-blowing statements one after another. Now, d- does your mind get blown by the idea that there was a human being on the earth who never sinned. Right, I mean, can you pull that off for one day? <laughs> I mean, I am, I am more in touch with my fallenness. I, you know, I, I'm wrestling with the sins of doubt before my feet get out of the bed. I'm already sinned. I'm already, I mean, the day is already blown. If I'm aiming at being the sinless savior, I'm done. I haven't even got out of bed yet. My mind's already been working and doubting in some category, right? But this is mind-blowing stuff. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he was reviled. When he, the son of God, the God of glory in human flesh, when he was reviled. Can you imagine? Right? Can you go there at all? He's not not a punk from the neighborhood being reviled. He's the God of glory, surrounded by knuckleheads who don't know who he is, treating him like he's a chump. Can you imagine? I'm so grateful that he is the God of glory because I would not have responded the right way. (laughs) If I had his power and my personality, (laughs) you can fill that in. but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, as soon as that section ends, back into the theater of the believer we go. Likewise wives. Right? Now, do you understand? Everything around this verse is flowing out of who Christ is and what he's done. Right? If You first got to have your mind blown by this Savior before you're going to live a mind-blowing life. Look at what Edmund Clowney says. He says, far From being irrelevant to Peter's exhortation, the atoning sacrifice of Christ lies at the heart of all that he has to say. The example of Christ is a saving example. Christ's suffering is our model because it is our salvation. It does not merely guide us. It is the root of all our motivation to follow. Our living to righteousness Follows in Christ's steps because we died to sin in his atonement. Remove Christ's atonement from the passage and its point would be lost. Do you understand? If all the exhortation that I have to bring to you today is, hey, live as citizens a certain way, live as employees a certain way, and live in your marriages a certain way. All right, now go get them, everybody. And I leave out this part of this passage. I have left you to the power of your flesh and the words that I have just spoken to you. But right in the middle here is an exhortation that puts the basis for my life in the person and work of Christ. That's the basis. Right? You have been called to this. This passage says, you've been called, right? Extract that word calling from the individual profile that we usually tend to seek, right? All of us want to discover our calling, discover what am I here for? And usually we tend to track alongside our personality, our talents, uh, our family history, where we're from, what time frame we were born into, what unique things are going on in our world that afford us certain opportunities. And, and then we're, we're wrestling through our calling. Okay, well, this is my umbrella calling before any of those things even matter. Right? Do you understand? It's, it's more important for you to discover that you're called to bring glory to God. That's more important than you discovering how to use that unique talent that you have. That everybody else stands around and oh, you are so, oh, and, oh, that's, um, can you come to me? And everybody freaks out over something that you do special. And so we live our life trying to figure out, I just know I'm called to be special. (laughs) Because I am special in this way. Everybody tells me I'm special this way. I've always been special this way. Certainly God would want me to be special this way. Have you stopped to ask how your specialness was intended to bring glory to God? Because if you're not asking that question, I don't think God wants to take you off the leash. You'll run off and never come back. Your specialness is all about you. It's not about God. First discover how your specialness is about God, and then you actually become safe to let your specialness be seen for the glory of God. Not sure why we're showing across the great divide, but... <laughs> Big assumption here. Listen, listen to this in verse 21. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. All right, huge assumption right here in this passage. This passage assumes that you want to follow in his steps. This passage assumes that you have observed something in Christ That has wrecked your world and made you want him more than you want anything else. This passage assumes that all that's contained in it dazzles you. Amazing. It blows your mind so that you want to follow him. All right. What if you don't want to follow him? Well, then sounds like there's a little bit of a disconnect here sounds like whatever you've encountered in Christ didn't blow your mind very much. It didn't amaze you. It didn't dazzle you. It didn't own your affections. It didn't bring you to your knees to where you went, oh, my God, have you seen this? You bumped into it, and it was kind of like, hmm, Savior, yeah, hmm, Lord, hmm, yeah, no, yeah, I'm with you, Keith, yeah. See, the exhortation gets its impact by the desire of the one being exhorted, wanting to follow. I want to follow. I think Christianity suffers <clears throat> immensely from a lack of impact. Right, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Good in a category uniquely all his own. Good and better than anything else. Okay, well, what if I'm not wanting to follow that good? I want to follow this good over here. Well, then I can promise you. You haven't tasted the goodness of God enough. It's not just a matter of me standing up here and exhorting you. Do good. Do good. Do good. All right, all you marriages, go out there and do good. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of having seen Christ in such a way that you want that more than anything else. And if you don't want it, it highlights what a weak impact the Christ has had on our lives. Now, look at this thought. A guy named Tolian Chavidian wrote in the introduction or the foreword to Give Them Grace. is a parenting book I've recently been looking at for us. He says, the primary reason our children fail in their doing is that they fail to grasp at a deep heart Level, and I say in a mind-blowing level, what Jesus has already done. They often give up in their efforts to obey because we have unconsciously trained them to obsess more over their feats for Jesus than over Jesus' feats for them. Long-term, sustained, gospel-motivated obedience can come only from faith in what Jesus has already done. Not fear of what we must do. Any obedience not grounded in or motivated by the gospel is unsustainable. No matter how hard you try, how radical you get, an engine that you're depending on for power to obey that is smaller than the gospel will conk out in due time. That's why in the middle of these exhortations comes a resounding plea to look upon Christ and what he has done in the gospel. Elise Fitzpatrick, who actually is the author of this book, Give Them Grace, she says Christian children and their parents don't need to learn to be nice. Right? Parents, can you hear that word coming out of your mouth? Be nice. Now, now be nice. Uh, you, need to, you need to be nice. Right? As though the goal for our unregenerate children is that they would be nice. Right. This is helpful because that is not their primary need, nor should it be our primary goal. They need death and resurrection and a Savior who has gone before them as a faithful high priest, who was a child himself and who lived and died perfectly in their place. They need a Savior who extends the offer of complete forgiveness, total righteousness, and indissoluble adoption to all who will believe. This is the message we all need. We need the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel. It's the premise of this book that the primary reason the majority of kids from Christian homes stray from the faith is that they never really heard it or had it to begin with. They were taught that God wants them to be good. That poor Jesus is sad when they disobey. (laughs) All right, parents, own up. You're sad when your children disobey, and you're projecting that upon the Savior. (laughs) Jesus is very sad based on your behavior. No, he's, he's sovereign, and he sees where this is going. You're the one who's sad. Poor Jesus is sad when they disobey, and that asking Jesus into their heart is the breadth and depth of the gospel message. Scratch the surface of the faith of the young people around you, and you'll find a disturbing deficiency of understanding of even the most basic tenets of Christianity, I, I would say not. Just, I don't want to make that to sound like doctrine. I would find you will find a disturbing lack of impact of having met the Savior, of having had their minds blown by this Christ, who is the way He is, and who has done on their behalf what He has done. When we look into the scriptures, we find people who had their minds blown by Christ. The disciples got around Jesus. And at some point, their minds are so blown, they're willing to walk away from their whole life and follow him. Businesses and friends and relationship and property and everything safe to them. They're going to leave it. And they're going to follow him. And wherever he's going, They're going, no matter how unsafe, no matter how difficult, no matter how awkward it gets. Remember that awkward moment where Jesus is teaching to the crowds one day? And it's so awkward when he talks about eating flesh and drinking blood that everybody hits the road on him. And Jesus turns to these disciples and he says, do you want to go too? Do you remember what they said? No. Where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. Right, there's no other options here. Right? The Keith translation would say, no, you've blown our minds. <laughs> there's no one like you. Where would we go and find what you have to give to us? We couldn't go anywhere but to follow you, no matter how hard it gets. Right, do you remember the woman? Jesus goes to eat one day, Luke chapter 7, at a, the home of a Pharisee. She comes in, and she sits down, and she's crying, and she's weeping. She takes this very expensive vial of perfume. She pours it on Jesus' feet, and she weeps, and her tears wash his feet, and she takes her hair. She's she's not come prepared. She takes her hair and begins to dry the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisee, remember the Pharisee and his self-righteousness? He's freaking out. If Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he would not let her do this. And Jesus adjusts this Pharisee a little bit. but When we get to the end of the story, Jesus says something that's very telling. He tells a story about one guy who owed this much and another guy who owed a lesser amount. And the master who forgave that debt, he asks the Pharisee, who do you think will love the master more? He says, well, the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus explained, yeah, he who has been forgiven much Loves much. Listen, can I tell you, I think part of the reason why there's such a lack, especially with our young people, but it's true for us too, that's such a lack of being having our minds blown by Christ, is, is that most people don't experience sufficiently the burden of their sin. He got a Pharisee, he's full of sin but he's out of touch. He could invite Jesus to come dine with him because he's a Pharisee, and that's just Jesus, and Jesus is going to come into his house, doesn't wash his feet, doesn't humble himself. He's not aware of his sin. There's another woman there who is aware of her sin, and she's humble at the feet of Jesus. She's weeping, and she is loving much, and she's going to go wherever he's going. Remember last week when we looked at John the Baptist? Do you wonder why... John the Baptist was looking for the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. you think this man knew something about his own sin? He knew what it was to be under the burden of sin. Are you the one? Or do we look for another? Because this man knew, someone's got to take the burden of sin off me. Right? when that song that we sung earlier, How Great Thou Art, when on the cross... My burden's gladly bearing. Are you in touch with the thought that your sin is an excessive crushing weight? I think too many of us come to Christ. We don't sound like Martin Luther when we come to Christ. Martin Luther was tortured by his own sin. Couldn't seem to get rid of it was under the weight, felt the condemnation. We we are so quick to say, don't feel bad, don't feel bad, don't feel bad, don't feel bad. Everywhere, "Don't don't feel bad, don't feel bad. Listen, when the weight of your sin begins to crush the breath of your life out of you, you will call out for a Savior in a totally different way than when Jesus is just in charge of life improvements. Hey, my life's not bad. But sure, if Jesus wants to come along and help me out, I'll take that. That, That's not an encounter with the Savior. That's an inadequate encounter with the Savior. It's what produces a lack of ability to be exhorted. I'm not going where he wants to go. You're going to follow him that way. There's a lack of impact in our lives where God comes and removes this burden of sin. Let me just take a moment here. When you look through this passage, and you get introduced to this Christ, consider who it is that we are encountering. He committed no sin. No sin. This is a sinless Savior, a sinless Savior who is going to suffer in my place. Christ suffered for you. Can you get your mind around the suffering of the God of glory who lived perfectly in glory? He takes upon himself this shell of humanity. Do you know how insulting it is just to become a man and then to become a servant? He's not even a wealthy uh, mover and shaker amongst humanity. He's a servant, and then he's going to get on the wrong end of the law, having never done anything to break a law ever. He's going to be accused and he's going to be crucified, and he's going to submit himself to that and be obedient unto death. This is the Savior that is your Savior. All along the way, he wasn't welcomed. There were no parades, and and I don't even think Palm Sunday qualifies for a parade. It was a parade under the guise of misunderstanding. They were not throwing a parade for the Son of God has come to die in our place for our sins. No, no, no. They were throwing a parade for their version of the Son of David who would finally free them from these obnoxious Romans. He, he was despised and rejected. this Savior who is your Savior. He came for such a purpose. was brutally crucified. And then he endured... The wrath of God on the cross. Don't, don't, don't let anything about the cross eclipse what happened in the part that you don't understand. Right? I can freak out over the, you know, the cross. His back was ripped open. He put a cross on his back. He carried it. Okay, that, that freaks me out. He was flipped over backwards and laid on that cross after his back had been opened up by Whips and that freaks me out. Nails were driven through his wrist and you can feel in your own nerve endings what that must have been like and that freaks me out. Here's the part that you and I can't get. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, the furious wrath of God is being placed upon the Son of God on that cross in your place. I don't get it, and guess what? You and I will never get it. We will never know what it was in that moment. Now, there are, there are sinners who will spend eternity apart from God in hell who will know what that was. Listen, when this passage talks about a Jesus who kept entrusting himself to God, who judges justly, please, please, can, can I rescue us from the hippie movement again? This is not Jesus walking around, peace, peace, everything, peace, peace, everything, peace, peace. Listen, when when they were about to crucify him, he entrusted himself to the plan of God. He wasn't just saying, everybody, everybody be at peace. Everything's cool. Do you understand that he knew that the God who judges justly was going to bring the wrath upon himself and reserve wrath for those who rejected God? You know, sometimes we we have a bad theology. We turn God and all Christians into this. Well, just lay down and let everybody roll on you. Go ahead. That's what a Christian would do. You understand, when Jesus laid down his life, he laid it down for you who would be redeemed by his actions. And he left in the hands of God who would judge those who would not. Oh, they were going to get theirs. He just wasn't the one who was going to bring it. this moment is the Savior dying in my place. He, when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he was threatened, he did not utter threats. Well, why did he do that? Because his face was set like a flint toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. There was nothing that would deter him from that mission. See, retaliation in that moment was swallowed up in Redemption. It was a God who was more intent on redeeming you and I than he was on letting you know who he was in that moment. I'm the son of God. You want to mess with me? I'll tell you who I am. No, no, no. Like a lamb who was silent before his shearers. He didn't say a word. You understand why Jesus didn't say anything? This is how in control God is. The Bible actually says, I'm, you know, I think you should see something of the heart of God in this. It's a little bit of a freaky statement. But the Bible says in Isaiah that God actually has smeared their eyes so that they would not see, lest in seeing they would turn from their sins. Wasn't that what God wants? Uh, God wanted the Savior to die on a cross. And Jesus did nothing to deter that. He didn't present an argument. He didn't show off. He didn't do something because at the end of the day, He wanted to give up his life for us. And so he made sure he didn't do anything that would deter these people from killing him. And it was the father's plan that they would do exactly that. And along the way, it's as though along the parade route, God smeared their eyes so that they could not see this lamb of God needs to go to a cross. Because if if they had seen he is the Lord of glory, they would have responded differently. God wanted to make sure the Son of God was going to die on that cross. Why? God, why are you doing that? Out of love for you and for me, who would be redeemed by those very acts. See, this is a mind blowing Savior. Now, one of the things that I think we wrestle with is have you had your mind blown by God? In the next few weeks, we unpack these verses, and they're going to tell you to do some really hard stuff. You're going to be relating to the government in a way that you just don't feel like relating to the government. You're going to be called on to relate to your boss in a way that you're not going to feel like relating to your boss. You're going to be called in your marriage to be something that you don't feel like being in your marriage. Why would you do it? Because I've had my mind blown by this Savior who did those things for me. Now, let me just capture this before we close. Kirk, go ahead and come back up here. You know, do, you, do you capture something here? Because I think this verse is, is meant to be enamoring and not just imitative. It's, it's meant to make us go, wow, and not just, okay, I'm supposed to do that too. Because right? listen, it starts off saying, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. Yes and no. Because some of the things that are going to get mentioned in this passage are simply for you to be blown away by. Because you can't follow him in some of these. Right out in the next verse. He committed no sin. Do you think the Bible's trying to teach you that following his example now, be sinless for the rest of your lives? It's just trying to draw your attention to this mind blowing God who He was that way. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Do you think the Bible's calling you to follow in, in, in the steps that way? Are you to bear anybody else's sin on a cursed tree of judgment? No. no so, okay, so what's this verse trying to accomplish in us? Well, it's exhorting us to live these amazing lives, and it stops right in the middle and says, okay, wait, wait, wait. wait. Can we all turn back to Christ and be blown away by him? Can we get from him a mind-blowing encounter and example of what he has done on our behalf so that then we can talk about whether or not we're willing to do these things? Listen, if, you, if you're not amazed... By Christ, if you're not blown away by the gospel. Do you know how many things in the Bible you'll never try? (laughs) You'll never do them. Listen, that book I'm reading is interesting, interesting thoughts for how we raise our kids, but I think some of us get raised in the church in a real similar way and grow up spiritually in a real similar way. We lack an amazement and a capturing and an enamoring with Christ. And then we sit in church week in and week out, and we hear our, these exhortations to do this and do this. And stop doing that and don't do that. Start living this way and pick up that. And no longer go there and abstain from this. Okay, listen, listen. The cure to that is not for preachers in the Bible to shut up about exhortations. The cure is for you and for me to encounter a God who blows our minds, blows your mind, messes up your world, makes everything else become less valuable because of the supremacy of him. Now listen, that, that would be the great need this morning. That would be the great need in any attempt to walk in these exhortations. Is, Lord, you need to sit in my life in a greater way. Listen, there's some young people here. You got young people here today? You have a very dangerous balancing act on your hands. You live amongst the people of God. You live amongst people who live a certain way. You live amongst people where there's Bible passages that are concerned that the people of God live a certain way. And next thing you know, you can find yourself trying to live a certain way. What's your affection like for God? What kind of delight do you take in God? Does God take your breath away? Is he freaked you out that he would forgive you? Well, before you could be freaked out by your forgiveness, do you even know what it is to be under the weight of the burden of your sin? Listen, young people, young people especially, if you grew up in America, you're this way too, though. Your sin's not that big a deal, is it? I'm okay, you're okay. Somehow everything's really okay. Or is your sin a burden? Does it crush the air out of you? Are you desperately realizing, I've got to get this thing off of me? If, if you're not in that condition, do you know one of the things that will keep you from ever being in that condition? Keep you distance from a holy God. It's a weird thing you got to do. You draw near to God, he will blow you away, but he will scare the tar out of you too. You will appreciate his forgiveness, but before you do, right before you taste forgiveness, you will taste the bitterness of your own sin. And you will stand like John the Baptist and say, are you the one who can take my sin away? Are you that one? Because I'm looking for that one. I need a savior in my life. You hear this morning you need a Savior in your life? Let's stand up together. it is perhaps unavoidable that when we gather, we read your word and we listen to it, that we may hear something that we're tempted to ignore, some exhortation that takes us into steps of faith that we just don't want to go. Lord, in that moment, we are those disciples to whom you are asking, do you too want to go away? I'm moving on. Do you not want to follow me? Oh Lord, this morning, are we in a building full of people who say, Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. You alone can take the burden of my sin away. You alone can bring healing into my brokenness. You alone set your face in love and affection toward a cross to take my place. You alone have a love and a commitment toward me that no one else has. Lord, where else could I go? Oh, Lord, help us. Lord, help us this morning. Draw us nearer to you. Because, Lord, there's a reality here outside those doors. There's a bunch of us who just aren't following you. Lord, we're not just here to be exhorted, do better, be nice. Lord, the basis for us ever changing that is seeing you. Lord, being drawn to an amazing God that we've been studying in these first few passages of this letter. Being affected by who you are. Going from once not being a people to being your people, the God of glory. We're your people. Called with an amazing responsibility and opportunity to declare your glory from our lives. Oh Lord, this morning, draw us near to yourself. Lord, from the back of this building forward, Lord, in all these places, Lord, in the way in which we're living and what we've, what we've committed our lives to, Lord, what we're excited about, Lord, what matters to us. God, draw us near to yourself. Lord, bring a real encounter, Lord. we don't want to be a church and a people who are so distant from you that exhortations fall on dead ears because we don't have the faith or the eagerness to follow. Lord, this is mind-blowing callings. Lord, your church is to be a mind-blowing presence upon the earth. It's to cause people to be provoked, so that one day they will give glory to God. Lord, this passage holds out promise and hope. Lord, there are, there are lost husbands in this passage who get won by heaven, their minds blown by somebody else who had their mind blown by God. God, this this has huge ramifications. But Lord, this morning as we draw near to you, Lord, help us to be affected by you. Lord, not just to attempt to do better in our own strength, but God, to see you and to be so affected that you are our Savior, that we will follow you no matter where you go, no matter what it costs, no matter what you want for our lives. You are amazing. Amazing God.